Well, if you'll turn to your handout, we'll continue looking here at the Westminster Confession of Faith, the confession of our church. We, we certainly do um, hold it under the Holy Scriptures. It's not a perfect document. There are no, uh, there's no perfect production of any uh, sinful men. But we are thankful for the faithful summary of Scripture doctrine. And we're thankful that we can see that even though at times uh, we might think the wording and the details might be improved, yet these truths are so self-evident from the Holy Scriptures that we can uh, call this our own confession of faith and hold one another, especially in the pulpits of our church, to account that we would not be... uh, promoting a false a false doctrine and a false gospel. We looked then last last week together at the second paragraph and we completed our our study of that. So we'll begin this morning with the third paragraph on this chapter of baptism, which as we said has built upon the more general chapter previous to it. So if you missed any of those uh, lessons, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those. The third paragraph, then, deals with the mode of baptism. How is baptism rightly administered? And so our confession says, Dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water Upon the person. Now, let's first understand what this language is stating, and then we're going to look at these scripture references. Notice that it doesn't say that uh, dipping or immersion is an illegitimate baptism. It doesn't say that. That's important to note. But it does say that it's not necessary, that baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. Now, we've, we've kind of seen some elements of the case for this as we've been studying what baptism represents in its spiritual work in our lives. Um, it, it represents the Holy Spirit. It represents cleansing. It represents the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in particular upon a person to accomplish all of this by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we, we see just in, for example, the baptism of Jesus, the coming down of the Holy Spirit from heaven in the, in the form of a dove and resting upon him, uh, being uh, the, the reality that the baptism is a symbol of. And um, again, we, we begin to see some indications of how the water then is to be applied um, just, by, just by that. But let's look at the scripture footnotes. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10, we have a reference to something from the Old Testament. And I think it's helpful to really appreciate the significance of this point for us to remember together the ministry of John the Baptist. You remember that Jesus had said of John the Baptist that he he was the greatest, that as of that generation there was none greater than John, but in the age to come 
even even the least of these little children had such greater privilege and opportunity uh, in their experience of seeing Jesus and walking with him and listening to him uh, that even the, the least of those uh, had a, a greater uh, privilege in the kingdom. But it's helpful to realize that John, he was the last. He was the last great prophet, if you will, of, a, of the Old Testament age. He was the forerunner before Jesus. We know that. We know that Jesus himself is the one who brought in the, the new covenant. He is the one who, who brought all the fulfillment of what was in the Old Testament. As the sacrifice, he was the Lamb of God. He was the Passover Lamb. He was the great high priest. He was the great son of David who had finally come to take his seat upon the throne and fulfill all of those promises. So these are things that I trust we all know and believe. But because of that being the case in terms of who Jesus is, John is the last of what was old. And even in the way he came, he comes um, in, in a way reminiscent of Elijah. You remember his um, hairy garment, uh, his, his eating upon God's direct provision with the locust and the honey. Um, all of this was some, somehow uh, reminiscent of Elijah. In fact, Jesus even says he is Elijah who was to come. He's that second Elijah, the, the revisiting of the great prophet, the spirit of Elijah in John the Baptist. And so John, being an Old Testament figure, the very last of these, comes how? He comes to prepare the way for the Messiah, and he comes preaching a baptism of repentance. We looked at this last week. And as John comes on the scene and is calling people to repent, he's, he's calling them again. The New Testament hasn't been written. Jesus hasn't even come upon the scene as the Messiah yet. He's, his, his Bible is the Old Testament. He's preaching from the Scriptures in terms of what God had revealed to that point, that his people needed to repent of their sins and look for the promise of the Messiah and prepare their hearts and lives to uh, welcome him as their king and as their savior and deliver with joy, looking forward to that, because otherwise the day of the Lord nonetheless comes. And that is an Old Testament theme that we see um, kind of es- crescendoing in, in these later prophets as we get to the minor prophets later in the Old Testament era, this theme of the day of the Lord. And as they're preaching to the Old Testament people of Israel, it, it's not just a day of light and gladness because these are people that are rebelling against God, refusing to prepare their hearts for the Lord's coming. And so increasingly, the day of the Lord draws near, as Joel would preach, comes more and more to symbolize this day of reckoning, a day when you're going to meet your God. You've been living against him, and you are not ready for this. Uh, He's going to come in judgment against the wicked, and you're giving your life to wickedness. So you, you do the math, as it were. So John, he is very much in the spirit and the character of these Old Testament uh, minor prophets such as Joel. He's coming now to say, well, the day is at hand. It's here. 
this day that you've been hearing about. And I am come, sent by God himself, to call you to repentance. That was the key element of what preparation for the coming of Messiah involved. It was, again, if you're going to be full of joy as God's covenant people, well, here the Messiah is is knocking at the door and about to come in. You have to have your life given to God. You need to be repenting of your sin, delighting in the covenant promises of God uh, that this might be a day of salvation and blessing and not of judgment. All of that to say, John's ministry is, is very continuous from the Old Testament. It is a continuation of that. And as he came preaching a baptism of repentance, he came with something that, interestingly enough, even though there was some great resistance to John, especially from the leadership of God's people, they didn't like to hear, you know, this house is a mess. And, and God's about to come. You need to deal with it. They were the leadership. They, they didn't think that reflected well on them, what John was saying. But they nonetheless had a context for understanding what John was doing. Even when the Pharisees come to John and they, they, they even express, well, you know, this is such a popular movement. We would like to be baptized. You know, we want to be in, in on this and not on the outside. Um, it's just helpful for us, I think something we sometimes overlook, to remember that this matter of, of John coming and baptizing people was not just um, without context. It wasn't unlooked for. They, they understood what this meant. They were coming um, with some understanding that this would be a demonstration of our commitment to the cleansing of our lives through repentance. And so John's baptism then has its roots just as his ministry did in the Old Testament. Now all of that to say, there are some additional passages in the New Testament that look back on that Old Testament time and give some references to baptism, not as a sacrament of the New Testament church, but just baptism more generally, had a place in the Old Testament. It was associated with cleansing. It was associated with consecration. And as we, as we come to appreciate that and we realize, well, that, that was the backdrop of John's ministry. This is how the people who were hearing John's preaching, they weren't saying, well, we've never heard of this. We've never heard of baptism. What is that all about? They related it to this very same context. And so as we come to Hebrews chapter 9, we... we see one of these New Testament passages that makes this reference to baptism in the Old Testament. Now, as we come to realize that, then we're going to look and see some, some things about baptism in the Old Testament that help us understand how it functioned and therefore give us very strong presumption of how John's baptism was performed, which led right into New Testament baptism. That's going to be the first thing that we look to. How New Testament baptism was inherited from, it was repurposed, if you will, in the New Testament church, but it had Old Testament roots. And so in, in Hebrews chapter 9, of course, uh, the Old Testament is being looked at and examined in terms of its relationship to Christ. You remember, if you were here last Sunday morning, 
uh, we looked at he or last Sunday evening rather Hebrews chapter one. We made some comment about the fact that the Christians in those day had confessed Christ, but then their lives are threatened, their property's being taken, and some of them were being encouraged just come back to the fold, come back to Old Testament practice of religion, and uh, you can avoid all of this persecution. And so the author of Hebrews uh, leads his readers to consider that the Lord Jesus is everything. Everything good about the Old Testament was pointing to this figure who, who had come now. To reject him was to reject the essence and the heart and soul of what the Old Testament uh, was even offering God's people in terms of promises of redemption and salvation and covenant relationship with God. So here in Hebrews 9, all that's a lengthy introduction um, for this passage, but hopefully a helpful one. We, uh, we read in verse 1, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a section, a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, we can read that and not really find the connection, but if we look to the Greek here, uh, the word washings in the Greek is baptismois. It's the same word. And this helps us understand the use of the term. Again, when we find that same term, and John was baptizing, here we have a passage that uses that same term with reference to those Old Testament roots. And what exactly do we find in the Old Testament? What do we find in terms of these baptisms or washings that are in the Old Testament law? Well, there is cleansing that is affected. We, we had some reference to it here with the high priest going into the inner place. That's an instance of cleansing on the Day of Atonement that involved a, a baptism if you will, the sprinkling of, of blood. But we have several other instances of that in the Old Testament as well. Now, our, our reference now encourages us to go down and look then at verses 19 through 22. And so in verse 19, 
For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled both the blood, with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. We have a reference there to that day, which is recorded for us in uh, the end of the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses, having declared God's law to his people and having read that to them, in that great sermon, is then instructed that these people, obviously they've heard the law, but how much toward their salvation does that accomplish? They, they're lawbreakers. The, the whole point of that is to bring about a sense of their guiltiness before God, not to build them up as, well, this is the, the path of self-salvation, self-reliance that you can walk in. No, he concludes the reading of the law there with a declaration that they are unclean. They're an unclean people. They're law-breaking people. And the, the covenant that is being offered to them by the Lord is a covenant of grace, not a covenant that rests upon their works. It's a covenant that rests upon God and his work, just as when he had declared that to Abraham and he alone passed through the parts. Uh, the effectiveness of accomplishing this depends upon God. With that, Moses takes the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and it, it isn't, again, it's not an outward uncleanness. It's like Peter told us as we, we looked at his letter. Um, this corresponds to baptism, which now saves you, not the washing of filth from the body with water, but the cleansing of our sins. Much the same way, if, if it was an outward filth, then, then we, we would need a good bath. But this is pointing them to a spiritual uncleanness. And so the method of cleansing is, is really just pointing them, pointing them forward. Now, what would the significance of this be? Blood. In particular, that's the key element in all of this where Moses is sprinkling the book, the people, the tent, all the vessels used in worship. And this explanation in verse 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Well, this same book of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear that it wasn't the animal's blood being sprinkled upon these people that, that could offer any help to them. You just had a little goat's blood on you now. But this was done at God's direction, pointing forward to the solution to the problem of their guilt, of their sin. And that's again, John the Baptist. He's this great Old Testament prophet, the forerunner of Messiah, the last of his kind. And he comes saying what? Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This is the fulfillment of everything we've been looking for. 
He's the one who actually has blood to shed that can cleanse you because you have the guilt of sin. You have to have a sin bearer, and that's what Jesus came to be. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. The Lord Jesus came and took our sin upon himself and took that with him to the cross. And his death is for our sin. And that is how his blood is the payment. It is the payment for our sin, the full payment. Nothing more can be asked for. The full measure of guilt is satisfied and paid in the death of Jesus. And again, it wasn't just a physical death upon the cross, but it was him drinking the cup of God's wrath, something far beyond. A lot of people have been crucified in the history of the world, but only one in that was also drinking the cup of God's wrath. It was the equivalent in God's perfect sight, the equivalent of what all of the myriads and myriads of believers in Jesus would have paid for their own sin in an eternity in hell. That is what Jesus paid. He didn't short. There was no discount. He paid the full price on the cross. And so, again, we, we, we weep, but we also rejoice when we look upon that cross and see Jesus bleeding there. Because, of course, we remember he is not a dead Savior. He's been raised from the dead. But thinking of him dying for us should break our hearts and cause us to grieve over our sin that led to such a terrible price. But it makes the blood of Jesus precious to us. And that's why, as we prayed in our opening prayer, as Peter would say, we have to remember that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price not the relatively worthless silver and gold of this world, but the precious blood of God's own Son. It's precious to us. It's the most precious thing in the universe because it alone is sufficient payment for sin. And so here in the Old Testament, Moses was... At God's instruction, he reads the law. He doesn't hold back. He reads the whole thing, and he tells them, do this and you will live. If you reject this, you will die. And of course, they all, if they have any spiritual sense of their own life and heart, they can only hear all of this and think, I'm, I'm a lawbreaker. How can I find life? And so God leads them then, to look to the redemption that is in Jesus. That was the whole point of this sprinkling of the blood, that there is a cleansing even from the filth of sin. And there is the possibility for those, even those of you, which is all of you, those who are lawbreakers to still come near to God and to worship him and have him pleased with you. How could this be? There has to be the sprinkling of blood upon you. And again, in these Old Testament signs and symbols, what are they being taught about? What are they being taught to look for? That Lamb of God that John came and pointed out. 
Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. So it's a very powerful picture of the work of redemption, the death of Jesus. It's not the blood of bulls and goats that can take away sin, Hebrews tells us. These things were always looking forward to Christ. But to our point this morning, here is an example as we just read in verse 10, these laws that had to do with gifts and sacrifices, especially this ceremonial law, the sacrificial laws of the Old Testament that gave all of these very particular detailed instructions about how to offer these sacrifices, which again were pointing them forward to the Lord Jesus. But those laws that describe all of this, notice again in verse 10, they, well, back to verse 9, uh, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. What, what again, what is being described here? Well, what's the point? If it can't perfect the conscience of the worshiper, that sure is a lot of trouble to go to. All of these detailed instructions in the Old Testament, and I still don't have a perfected conscience? Well, they in themselves couldn't do that. But they were pointing people forward to the work of Jesus. And God gave faith to his people in the Old Testament to understand and to believe. This is how Jesus, in speaking to the Jews there, I believe it's in John chapter 8, would, would speak in terms of Abraham and say, Abraham looked to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. That's a, an Old Testament believer in Jesus. So again, in verse 10, this Old Testament law that was prescribing all of these was dealing with food and drink and various, various washings or baptisms, same word, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. In other words, they were outward forms and pictures, if you will, acts that were symbolic, that were pointing everyone forward to the accomplishment of these things with the coming of Jesus. And so again, there, there is something new about baptism in the New Testament church. It's now a sacrament by the instruction of the Lord Jesus. And it is just water. There's no blood involved in New Testament baptism. We saw that last week, that water is sufficient as the, the element to use in the sacrament of baptism. It's symbolizing the life-giving spirit um, who comes to the dry and thirsty ground. It symbolizes the cleansing of the Holy Spirit, the washing of regeneration, as we read in Titus 3. There's no blood involved in Christian baptism because instead of us being in the Old Testament, needing to be reminded what can cleanse you, there's got to be the shedding of blood. And that's why in the Old Testament we have blood everywhere. In fact, that's Hebrews he, he makes that point in verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But now we are in the New Testament, and the blood has been shed. 
And, and a, a man can't take the blood of Jesus and apply it to you and cleanse you with it. Only Jesus can do that by his Holy Spirit. And so here in the New Testament, we have water that it represents basically the same thing as Moses here and his sprinkling of all these things with the blood and the water, a representation that the cleansing work of Jesus must be applied to you, which involves his death for your sake. All that to say, here in Hebrews 9, we have this reference to baptisms in the Old Testament, which John the Baptist himself is carrying forward with his baptism of repentance. It is a, a continuation of this understanding that cleansing and repentance are a requirement for covenant fellowship with God in his coming near. Now, in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, uh, again, th there was much that was new and amazing about the gospel being proclaimed there in the early days of the church, but this matter of baptism had a context and a background. And here in Acts chapter 2, we have this reference to verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Uh, again, this is the, the conclusion of Peter's powerful sermon there on the day of Pentecost. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have two things here that I think are worth noting in terms of the point we are considering this morning about baptism. The first is, notice this is very much a parallel context to what Moses had done. He declared the word of God to the people, which brought great condemnation upon them. And then God instructed Moses to sprinkle the people uh, with, the, with the water and the blood, pointing them to there is an escape from the guilt of sin. Look to Christ and be saved. Much the same here. Peter has just declared the word of God to these people, and it has brought great condemnation upon them and conviction by the, the blessing of the Holy Spirit. They're cut to the heart. They've just participated in murdering God's Son. What, what can we do? Is there any escape or hope for us? And Peter is able, unlike Moses, who was just pointing them forward to some future act that God would accomplish, Peter points them back now to that very same death to say, that is the hope for mankind in their sin. There is a cleansing, there is a forgiveness of sin and he, he calls them to repent and be baptized. So that's the first thing. The, the parallel here is striking. But the second thing is I want you to notice, and this is something we will follow through the book of Acts uh, next week due to our lack of time today, but I'll go ahead and point it out since we're already in this passage that there is a connection between baptism and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't misunderstand a man cannot just apply water to another person and pull the Holy Spirit down from heaven. 
only God can give this gift. It's not in the hands of man. But there is, by God's word, a connection, a relationship, where, as we've been looking for weeks now, what is baptism? It is a representation, a sign, a seal, a confirmation of the spiritual reality of cleansing, which is accomplished by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon a person unto life and salvation. And we'll look at that. And again, even in Jesus' own baptism, the Holy Spirit coming down from above in the, in the form of a dove. Well, there's a connection between that and the application of water, which is the symbol and the sacrament now picturing that. Well, let's close with prayer and we'll um, get ready for our time of worship. Our God, we do thank you for such a glorious gospel as you have declared to us that because of your great love for this world, you even gave your own son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish in sin, but have eternal life. We thank you for the payment of sin that is sufficient, which is found alone in the blood of Jesus. And we thank you that it being so precious to us is our hope of cleansing and is pictured in this continued practice of baptism, which has its roots even in the Old Testament. We pray that you would help us to come and continue to learn as students of your word. We pray that these things would not be cold and lifeless, uh, just in our minds, facts that we now have better understanding of, but that our hearts would be moved, that learning the truth would be transformative in each of our cases, that it would result in a life of greater devotion, obedience, assurance, joy in the Lord. We, we know that your word gives life, and we pray that there would be uh, just an increased hunger for it in each of us and all your people. And we pray that you would bless us as we've gathered to worship you. Help us to worship in spirit and in truth and bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.